This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. The history of entertainment is a unique and compelling thread in America's story, one that today's guest has dedicated his life to studying, collecting, and interpreting. Ryan Littleman is the entertainment curator at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History and is putting the finishing touches on a massive new exhibit, exploring this aspect of American history. Click your ruby slippers three times because we're not in Kansas anymore on this week's episode of PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're excited to be joined by Ryan Lintelman, who is the entertainment curator at the National Museum of American History, a division of the Smithsonian. Um, and we're so excited to have him here today just to chat about all the cool things that are coming up and this massive permanent exhibit that he's been working on, um, on no small thing, the history of entertainment in America. So, um, but before we get to into all that, Ryan, um, People love to know kind of how uh, people made their way into preservation and history and curation and the work that they do. So what's your story? What was your your path? Was there sort of a spark moment where you dragged to historic sites as a child? Like what made you <laughs> who you are today? I think it's more that I dragged my own family to historic sites as a child. Uh, okay. Actually, we, I was just talking to my mom about how she remembered I made a PowerPoint presentation as like a middle schooler about how I wanted to go to Colonial Williamsburg. So uh, the nerddom is deep in me, but um, I, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and I actually ended up going to William & Mary for school down there in Williamsburg because I really loved history and really wanted to know what I could do with it. Um, and while I was there, I had a great mentor, Charlie McGovern, who um, you know is a professor who specializes in cultural and social history, but had also um, worked at the museum, at the American History Museum in an earlier career, um, basically doing what I do now. He was sort of the entertainment curator uh, in an earlier era. And uh, so he, you know, just really sparked the, the joy for history in me and kind of introduced me to the idea that you could work in museums, that there were jobs there. But, you know, the, the real thing that I really got interested in was this idea that uh, history was was less about wars and elections with these quiet periods in between and, you know, more about these broad cultural trends that 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 lens on history that's about ordinary people experiencing the world and creating their identity and forming their beliefs, you know, a lot of times through entertainment, the things that they watch and do for fun are the things that actually shape their identity more so than anything else in their lives. So, um, you know, I, I just got really interested in that and wanted to pursue that as, as a career. And while I was down there, I worked at Colonial Williamsburg um, in the research library, I, uh, special collections and in digital history, I'm working on projects for everything from like cataloging the, the photos of the architectural restoration of of uh, Colonial Williamsburg through to, you know, writing content for websites and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, luckily I was able to sort of start interning at the museum as an undergrad and I never left. I just kind of stuck around there at the American History Museum and worked on a lot of different projects there. But but this is really the the area that I, I really love the most. And um, the opportunity to share these objects with, you know, millions of visitors every year is is a real privilege. Yeah, I feel like other than like the curator of beer, or whatever that that cherry gig is, yeah. the curator of entertainment is 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 pretty sweet. I mean, it, it must have been. It's is it a whole division of entertainment? Are, are there multiples of you, or do you kind of head up the whole thing? 
Yeah, so I work with one other curator who does entertainment and sports um, and some other curators who do uh, you know, sports and music. And I'm within the division of cultural and community life at the museum. So um, other curators within that division focus on domestic life or community engagement and involvement. Um, but, uh, you know, we've got a small group of people who are really focused on what a lot of people refer to as popular culture. That's not the division name that we use, but that's kind of the, the framing of, of the division, you know, in terms of how we're thinking about this exhibition, that we're breaking down these sort of artificial barriers that we might have created within the museum structure between sports and music and entertainment and looking at all of those as, um, you know, uh, entertainment as, as this broader way of, of Americans engaging with um, their leisure time, but also the world more broadly. So I think some people listening who work in the field maybe are very familiar with this and others listening aren't so familiar with it. What exactly does a curator do? I think people think probably have a lot of different ideas about it. So I, mean, I know that there's like no probably no, you know, normal day. But like, what exactly does a curator do? What is your day to day job? What are you trying to accomplish as the curator of entertainment? Yeah, well, the, the confusion is, is uh, I think, rightfully so, because we do so many different things. And I think the variety of life uh, is really what what drew me to this position. You know, we do everything from the sort of, you know, very day-to-day -day sort of cataloging of objects and writing descriptions and labels for exhibitions to, um, you know, actually designing these exhibitions and working with outside, you know, experienced designers to create immersive environments. And, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of relationship management, dealing with um, donors, uh, you know, certainly there, there are, um, you know, some, some different concerns for an entertainment curator and dealing with folks in that industry that's so uh, interested in publicity and, um, and in legacy and those sorts of things and other curators who might work in medicine and science or in work in industry. Um, but, you know, I spend a lot of my time sort of managing relationships and working with people to help them understand uh, how we think about the past and how, you know, if they were to donate an object from their career, for instance, you know, how we might interpret that and talk about their place in history. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, um, it's the behind the scenes work of the museum is, is the main thing I would say to people, you know, like we're not regularly on the floor of the museum. We're working behind the scenes, taking care of the collections, building the collections, um, doing a lot of research and writing, uh, doing media and interviews like I'm doing right now. Um, but then also presentations, you know, I just was at the popular culture um, association conference. Uh, so, you know, we are, have a foot in that academic world too, where we're doing new scholarship, um, writing books, you know, writing articles, but also, um, and I think, you know, most importantly, engaging with the broader public. That's what sets us apart from academics who work, um, you know, in universities is that our primary audience as public historians is to reach, you know, for instance, at our museum, we get, you know, about 4 million visitors a year who come in mainly on school trips or with their family because they're on vacation. And we have this real opportunity in a way that not many other people in this broad field that we work in to connect with them. They're coming to us of their own choice, you know, making this huge investment of time and and, you know, sometimes money in order to come to this museum and say, teach me. And so, you know, that's that's something that we try to seize on. And especially with entertainment and things that people are really naturally drawn to say, OK, you're coming to see the Ruby Slippers. Now, what can we do with that? You know, <laughs> what can we tell you about the 1930s? What can we tell you about uh, LGBTQ history? What can we tell you about uh, women's history through this one object that you're dying to come and see? So how often there's obviously a lot of behind the scenes work and we're going to talk about sort of taking care of the collection and things like that and, and obviously working and writing um, and building up this this massive new exhibit, which we're going to talk about. But how much time do you spend actually out in the field like, oh, man, we need to go find 
you know, we need to go talk to Kanye and, and get uh, <laughs> one, of, one of his, you know, one of Yeezy's things or whatever. Like, wh- like, how often are you actually out in the field kind of like, hey, we need to go pick things up? And, and I'm also curious, sort of as an aside, w- did you do any like entertainment collecting around COVID? Yeah, well, I was going to say the last two years, I haven't been out in the field very much at all during COVID, but um, it has been something that's been on our mind and trying to think about um, the changes that are happening in the world of entertainment and in Americans' lives, you know, just sort of, you know, with entertainment on the fringes, how do we capture that? So, for instance, we've been speaking with some, um, you know, theatrical troops and um, theater owners about um, the, the restrictions that they put in place and how they were able to manage their schedules and their budgets and everything else that's involved with uh, maintaining a performing arts company. Uh, when you can't bring an audience in. So uh, things like that, we, we've been kind of trying to figure out. But, that, you know, there's some some really interesting stories about the way that how, um, you know, streaming has has sort of exploded in the past two years, too, because, you know, all the other venues closed down. And so, um, you know, the way that that changes the industry is not particularly clear at the moment, I think, in a way that it will be for a historical museum, you know, to think about maybe five or 10 years out, and we might be able to do some collecting around that then. But, you know, even just from a sort of layman's perspective, looking in, uh, you can think about things like Tiger King, or, you know, some of these shows that really captured the public imagination at different times in COVID and um, kind of brought back that idea of the water cooler entertainment in a way that hadn't existed anymore, because the, you know, the entertainment world is so splintered and fractured right now with so many choices for everybody to to see and stream anywhere they are. Um, For that kind of show to capture the imagination of so much of the country at once is something that, you know, we might have speculated was gone before COVID, but actually there have been these moments where everybody's talking about the same thing again, a way that we were about Seinfeld or, you know, Ellen or something like that in the 1990s. Right. Um, so that's something that we're definitely thinking about. Well, you, you've piqued my interest. Have you collected anything from Tiger King? Do you have anything from Joe? <laughs> we haven't, but, uh, you know, oh, I man, got a lot you need of... to get like one of his hats or something. <laughs> that was one of the things where, uh, you know, my colleagues at the museum who are all very interested in this because they all have their own interests in entertainment. You know, one of the things that I got a lot of emails about during COVID was like, hey, have you thought about Tiger King? <laughs> yeah. So um, let's talk about this new exhibit um, because it's pretty exciting and it's it's going to be there for quite some time. Might, e- might even outlive your time at the Smithsonian. Who knows? Yeah. Um, entertainment Nation. You've been working on this exhibit. So how long has it been in the planning process when does it open? And then, then we'll talk about like what you can expect to see in it and everything like that. But how long has this been in the works and, and give people a sense of the, the permanency of what is about to be debuted? Yeah, I mean, th- this has been in the works at least 10 years. Um, it's it's really, you know, a remarkable period of time and, and effort and money that's gone into it. But it's such a huge topic and such an important topic. Um, you know, the, the museum, the American History Museum, has been kind of renovating itself for the past 20 years now because we were built in 1964. And, you know, there's been a a slow and long refresh of all the exhibits in, in, in the museum. But part of that has been building in more of the social and cultural history and taking a much more broad look at American history than we did at the beginning when we were the Museum of History and Technology, actually, is how we started. Um, so that, you know, this exhibit has its its roots in the, the creation of this collection in the 1970s when we first collected from uh, Norman Lear, you know, the, the living room furniture from All in the Family, Archie Bunker's chair and Edith's chair. Uh, we collected Muhammad Ali's robe. We collected Fonzie's jacket from Happy Days. Some of these things that were the real first um, 
entries into this field of entertainment and trying to think about its importance in American life. And so um, a few of these things have been out over the years and we've become really well known for, for instance, having the Ruby slippers at the museum, which are rarely off display. Uh, so people come with this expectation to see this stuff, but we've never had a permanent place in the museum to show it off. It's always been kind of in the context of something else that we're doing. So um, that's why this has been so important, but you know, it's really important to get the, the messaging right on it too. And um, to bring donors around on that and you know, the internal conversations we have to have with our colleagues when we're all sort of, you know, angling for space in the museum, uh, what's the most important story to tell? So it took a long time for us to build up the sort of groundswell of, of we've got the story right. And this is as important as anything else that we need to say in here, even though the visitors have been telling us that for, for many years now, you know, coming and asking, where's the pop culture stuff? Right. So um, when this does open now in uh, early December of this year, 2022, it's going to be open for at least 20 years. So as you mentioned, this might extend past my my time at the museum or anybody else's. But, um, you know, when you have that much time to build something up and you really put this much effort into it, you want to be sure that it stays up for a long time. And and that's been part of our um, our development process for this was to make sure that it is a, a resilient exhibit that we can have rotations over time, that we can continue to update the content, rotate the objects that are in there, tell new stories on these same topics. Um, so the, the breadth that we've, you know, kind of created this with from the beginning um, means that we have, you know, this, this very broad message that over the past 150 years, entertainment has shaped the conversations that we have as a nation about who we are and who we want to be. So with that very broad, you know, thesis, we can tell a lot of sort of case study stories within that. Everything from talking about, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin in the Civil War um, and, you know, shaping Americans' understanding of, of race and slavery and kind of, you know, supposedly leading to the Civil War and that Abraham Lincoln is purportedly to have said, you know, to Harry Beecher Stowe, you're the little, uh, the little woman who started this great big war, um, all the way through to our current conversations that we're having about, for instance, you know, um, race and um, police brutality and how that relates to sports with Colin Kaepernick um, or the Time's Up movement and entertainment. Um, you know, th th there's so much to talk about over the course of this 150 years. And um, so we think that, you know, sort of talking about these modern stories that people really have an understanding of because this is happening within their lifetimes in the past few years, and then connecting it to these older stories. And you see um, how that same thing might have played out with blackface minstrelsy in the 19th century, or um, might have played out with, you know, the, the new woman in the 1920s. Um, all of these threads come throughout the exhibition. Super exciting. How big, I mean, give us a sense for the scale of this. Is there like, I don't know how, how a curator does that. Do you do, but square foot may not, might not be the easiest way for people listening <laughs> to envision it. But like, is, do you have a sense of like how many objects you have in it? Or I mean, maybe that gives people an idea of how big it is. Yeah, it's over 200 objects and, uh, you know, it's about 7,000 square feet, something like that. So I guess if you're into real estate, maybe that makes more sense than other. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, people. a giant house. <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the design of it is in such a way that we we give space for some of these pilgrimage objects that we've put in these what we call spotlight cases. So things like the ruby slippers or Captain America's shield or, um, you know, Selena's jacket, Prince's guitar. You'll be able to come in and see those with the space around them that, you know, maybe when we have one of those big days at the museum over the summer or the holidays when everybody wants to come, you know, you're not going to feel crowded in. You're going to have the space to take it in and, and have a, a sort of a personal moment with that object, even though there might be a lot of people around. Um, but then we'll have chronological cases that run around along the outside of the exhibit that 
look at these things over the, the course of history. So, um, you know, starting in the, the sort of mid 19th century all the way to today, you can follow that thread. Or there are these micro galleries that are really media based experiences that you can go into that one of them, is, for instance, is about the history of children's television, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, you might want to bring your kids and see that and have this sort of intergenerational experience where you look at everything from, you know, Captain Kangaroo and the Mickey Mouse Club all the way to today with Molly Denali and, uh, you know, the new characters on Sesame Street. Um, or there's there's another little micro gallery that's about um, the history of racial caricature in the United States and, you know, talks about blackface minstrelsy all the way through um, today's sort of attempts for comedians to kind of push back against stereotypes and, and um, you know, find their voices and, um, you know, have, have more authentic representations of minority communities. So, you know, there, there's going to be a variety of experiences within this, what might seem like a small space. I think I agree with you. It's, it's a pretty big house, but you know, as packed as it's going to be with objects, I think this is going to be a really popular show. So I know this is probably like asking, like, do you have a favorite child, but do you have any favorite objects in it? Um, and, or kind of as a follow-up to that, were there any like surprises when it came to objects or things that really shocked you as you were kind of putting this together? One of my favorite objects is our original Kermit the Frog, um, which is a cool object for just a variety of reasons. I mean, everybody loves the Muppets, but also, you know, he was made by Jim Henson when he was a student at the University of Maryland. So, um, you know, he's he's this young kid, really wants to work in television. He got an opportunity to do that, but it was with a puppet show. And so, you know, that wasn't his intention to ever work with puppets. And But he, he you know, jumped at the chance and said, okay, I can make this work. So, you know, he started making these puppets from things around the house. And his mom had this green wool coat that he cut up and made a hand puppet out of it. There's a pair of his jeans sticking out of the back for where his hand comes in. And he cut a ping pong ball in half for the eyes. So you get an idea of the sort of creative genius of the young Jim Henson. But, um, you know, it also can tell these stories about what the Muppets have meant. You know, he, he was you know, television thinker first. So he understood rather than somebody who was trained in the history of puppetry, what you could do with television, right? So he he understands that there's this sort of false proscenium that's created by by the framing of the television camera. And so, you know, you can think about different ways of moving and different ways of the puppets interacting with each other and zooming up close on their faces in a way that in a traditional puppet show, you, you know, you're kind of back far away from them. So he also used closed circuit television so that the puppets could be uniquely you know, reactionary to each other and actually, you know, get, get involved in these conversations and actions that are beyond what you could have done with a more wooden marionette from an earlier period, something like that. Um, so, you know, you can tell all those stories about the actual, um, you know, how this, the puppet show worked in Jim Henson's mind, but also what the Muppets have meant to people over time. You know, that Kermit is this representation of sort of like an optimistic can-do American spirit um, that, you know, this diverse group of people that he brings around him, you know, kind of collaborate together to put on a show and chase their dreams. And that's the thing that always plays throughout, you know, every Muppet production. And I think it's what's kept them relevant and resonant throughout American history. So that's one of my favorite objects. You're a fantastic curator because now you make me want to go and, and watch the Muppets. So you, <laughs> Great. you obviously you, you, you do you do good work here. Let's take a quick break. Come right back and we're going to do some rapid fire questions about objects and just sort of things that you've done as a as a entertainment curator. And we'll do that right here in PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. 
in partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy. The campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP's an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're excited today to be joined by Ryan Lintelman, who is the entertainment curator um, at the Museum of American History um, at the Smithsonian. And um, we, before we took our break, we were talking all about this new exhibit, which is going to open in December. And we encourage everybody listening, what, where, no matter where you are in the country, come into D.C., go see this. Uh, it's going to be fantastic. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm sold. I want to be there on opening day. Um, love to do rapid fire sometimes with people who, who work in, in unique positions. Um, and this doesn't have to be just for this exhibit, but, but so far in your career, what's been the most difficult object to conserve? Yeah. The, the project that I started with sort of as entertainment curator was our Ruby slippers Kickstarter, um, which some people might've heard of. This was an, uh, you know, actually gained international media attention, but you know, we've had the Ruby slippers at the museum since 1979. This is one pair of at least four that were made for the making of the film that have survived it today. Um, and as I mentioned, they've been on almost continuous display, which if you work in museums, you know that that's not a good thing in general no. for objects, especially no. with shoes that are 80 years old, that were designed to last through the production of a movie and nothing yeah. more. Um, so they have been at serious risk for a long time. And uh, when I stepped into the role of entertainment curator, we decided, okay, the time is now. We really need to do an in-depth study of these conservation projects, make sure that they will survive for generations to come because they're such an important part of our cultural heritage. So the Kickstarter was a way for us to do that, to reach out to a community, not only just to raise the money to do this project, but to give people a stake in what we were doing and to explain and educate about conservation and and how that works in a museum and why you can't just put things out and let them sit out forever and rot away, you know? So um, it was very cool. We, we raised over $350,000 from 6,000 donors around the world over the course of, um, I think it was just a week actually that we reached our goal. Um, it went really fast, but um, you know, I was able to do all these media interviews and really, like I said, get out there and educate and tell people about the process. Um, you know, we were fielding inquiries from people offering to uh, donate sequins or their time sewing them back on and <laughs> had to, you know, make the de distinction between conservation and restoration and what we're doing and, and really take that opportunity to talk about um, how the museum, you know, hires material scientists to study these objects, um, you know, using new technology and the work that was going to be done. So part of that was that we created this new um, this new state of the art case for the Ruby slippers that actually acts as a preservation chamber in itself, you know, and it blocks um, the spectrum of light that's most damaging to the shoes, which we now know because we have the time to do the conservation project. Um, it's actually got positive pressure within the case, uh, not to mention it's, it's a, you know, humidity and temperature controls. So there's no flaking or breaking off of any of the, the sequins, you know, and um, so we are, have a these real the, are these the best protected historic shoes in America? I think we can say that. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. I just want to check that off. Yeah. You heard it here first. <laughs> so that's just fascinating. So in, and, but, but was it a challenge to actually conserve them? Was it, is it um, also just sort of difficult conservation work? 
Yeah, my colleague Don Wallace uh, did really yeoman's work. You know, she she calls it a sequin by sequin process that she was uh, going through, counting each of the sequins, rotating them each so they were actually aligned. Um, you know, cleaning them with Q-tips uh, wrapped with Tyvek. Uh, you know, you can find videos and, and information about this online because we recorded it for all the Kickstarter backers and everybody else to just see what we were doing. Um, but you know, they're certainly the most researched shoes in the world now. Um, and you know, she did all this this really painful taking work and they're looking better than ever. Um, so you'll see them on display now in Entertainment Nation. And because of all this work that we did, we were actually called in to assist the FBI a few years ago. They had recovered another stolen pair of ruby slippers from the film. And they were looking for the world experts in the ruby slippers to bring in and you know advise them on whether or not this was an authentic pair that they had seized in this sting operation. Um, so you know, actually just a few weeks ago, we were able to meet with them again and kind of uh, help to assist a little bit more with their ongoing investigation. And uh, it's been a really fascinating and, uh, you know, something that I never <laughs> anticipated in my career working with the FBI on a pair of movie prop shoes. Yeah, but. I was going to say working with the FBI in particular, working with them when it comes to Ruby slippers. That's a yeah, that's definitely <laughs> that's definitely unique. Um, so, I mean, I obviously we sort of we've talked about the object that gets probably the most attention, which is the, these Ruby slippers. Is there. Is there an unsung object, something that you wish was more popular, you want more people to know about? Is there something that you're just like, this is something that I really wish people knew about, or this is like my favorite, but nobody really is aware of it. Nobody seems to care about it. Sort of an unsung object. You know, I, I mentioned um, blackface minstrelsy as sort of something that I'm really excited to get out in this exhibit, not because I like it or because I want to celebrate it, but because it's something that... Um, I think, you know, Americans don't want to talk about, right? And and it's something that's sort of a black eye in our history, um, but it's something that has this really lasting resonance and impact on, you know, a variety of, of, of themes and, and events in American history. And it's so central to the history of entertainment. I mean, blackface minstrelsy was the first homegrown American form of entertainment. And um, so, you know, that was one of the things that I really wanted to hit on first when I took this job was, you know, I collected several blackface minstrelsy costumes. We've been digging in the archives, pulling out some things that were kind of set aside and, and pushed away, you know, uh, whether that's sheet music or guides to blackface minstrel performance or even makeup that we have in the collections. Um, we'll be bringing that stuff out and talking about not only you know, blackface minstrelsy, but also stereotypes in entertainment relating to Latino Americans, Asian Americans, Native Americans. Um, you know, I mentioned this micro gallery that's called What's So Funny that looks at how comedians have dealt with race and entertainment and push back against some of these stereotypes over time. Um, but, you know, I think that these objects are going to be shocking. And we've been, that's one of the things that why this exhibit has taken so long, you know, what's exactly the right way to handle this kind of material and sure. knowing that we have a very diverse audience of people coming in here some of them are ready to jump into this debate and talk about this and some people i think are just going to be offended that it's even on display or you know not understand why we're talking about it so um it's it's a story that i think we're going to continue to to hammer on and make sure that people have the ability to um see it in its historical context to understand it better and to see its historical resonance today fantastic i think uh it, obviously, people are going to be excited about this new exhibit and want to come and see it. And we mentioned it opens in December. We'll put a link in the show notes to all the information about going to see it. So after the big exhibit opens, uh, you've got 20 years until you have to open a new one. Um, <laughs> what what are you? What's next for you? What are you? What are you working on now? 
So uh, there's a book that's coming out along with the exhibit that's also called Entertainment Nation that's sort of, uh, you know, a catalog of the exhibit. And along with that, I'm working on another book um, that is exploring how comedy in particular has shaped American history. So uh, sort of a, a more tightly focused lens on the, the broader thesis that we're looking at here. And that book's going to be a collaboration with the National Comedy Center, a new mm -hmm. museum in Jamestown, New York, uh, that's been doing a really fantastic job as the, the nationally you know, um, recognized by Congress uh, Museum of Comedy in the United States. Uh, so they've been building their collections, have a real focus on stand-up comedians. So they've got great collections from George Carlin, from, you know, the Smothers Brothers, from all, all of these folks who have really shaped the way that we think about comedy in the United States. Um, but so this book will come out and then we're working on a traveling exhibition that will combine our collections together and hopefully go around the country and show off some of these objects on the same theme. Um, so that, that's my big project coming up next. Fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how you'll deal with uh, Chris Rock and, and Will Smith. That'll have to be. Yeah. The, uh, and, uh, and yeah. And then just, in, you know, just in, that, that's a great example of, yeah. uh, of how this, this stuff stays so current. I mean, if you really think about it, there's, there's like a new, uh, you know, historically significant development in the history of comedy. I feel like every month, you know, whether that's sure. some, you know, beloved performer passing away and kind of reflecting on the importance that they have, or, you know, this idea of, of like sort of woke cancel culture and comedians pushing back and fighting about, um, you know, I can't say what I used to say anymore. Comedy is dying. Well, people have been saying that since the 1850s, you know, that like <laughs> every generation of comedians has said that comedy won't be funny anymore because there's, you know, this, this new woke generation that's saying they can't say what they want to say on stage. And, um, you know, so the, those, those uh, questions of censorship and free speech are all throughout the history of comedy. And that's something I'm really excited again, to, to give historical context to current debates. Before we go, uh, most difficult question, favorite historic place or site? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I'll, I'll give just a recent example. I was just in uh, New Orleans recently, and I went to Whitney Plantation down there, which mm -hmm. is just uh, an incredible site in itself. But, you know, a, a lot of times I think, you know, the, the drive actually traveling to some of these places tells you as much about the place itself as anything else, you know. So I, I just it, it was chilling to drive through these this area that's been shaped by these former plantations with the levee on one side and the Mississippi River on the other. And then these just sort of endless fields next to you and giant houses and giant churches next to you, too. It, you know, these expressions of the wealth of the few um, with the landscape representing, you know, the sort of. Uh, the labors and the the lives of the many who suffered under this regime. Um, so it, it was just a, a moment that I'm never going to forget. Uh, and I highly recommend everybody go to Whitney Plantation if they're ever down in that area. I've been there and 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 would concur. Uh, fantastic answer and a great interview. So exciting to hear about this and looking forward to getting out there and seeing this exhibit when it opens um, this December. And we'll make sure uh, to promote that when it happens. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ryan. Thank you. This is great. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.